This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Engaging a wide variety of compliance-related guests and topics, each week Tom Fox brings you the top commentators and information which will inform your compliance program going forward. Join us again for the top podcast in compliance, hosted by the voice of compliance, Tom Fox. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today we're going to have a little bit more of a somber story, though. Um, I welcome uh, back Lauren Steffi. Lauren is uh, was a the business reporter for the Houston Chronicle, and that's how I came to know him, uh, largely on his reporting around Enron. But uh, he has a different story that I'd never heard of until April 19th of this year. So, Lauren, with that introduction, uh, first of all, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. Always good to be here. So, Lauren, uh, you had a blog post on April 19th of this year uh, about the Oklahoma City bombing. And uh, I I found it incredibly moving. Uh, You really brought uh, to life for me many of the things I was thinking and and feeling in those early days. But um, maybe you can tell us what you were doing in the uh, the early to mid-90s, where you were, and how you ended up in Oklahoma City literally the day of the bombing. Well, I, uh, I was I was uh, working for Bloomberg, and this was you know 1995, so Bloomberg was still pretty pretty young uh, as a news organization. And we were primarily doing business and financial stuff, um, you know, earning stories, you know, short, very quick hit financial reporting. And um, so I, I was living, I was working out of my home, uh, living in Frisco, Texas, north of Dallas, and. Um, that morning, uh, you know, just after nine o'clock, my phone rang and it was uh, Mary Schlangenstein, who was our Houston correspondent. And she said, you know, do you have the TV on? And I said, no. And she said, turn it on any any channel. And, you know, whenever in the news business, when somebody says that, you know, something big's happening. Right. So I had this I had this little black and white TV. I mean, you know, this was before CNBC. Like there wasn't anything to watch as a business reporter during the day. So I had this little black and white TV in the corner of the office and I turned it on and, you know, it sort of gradually flickered to life. And I saw an image of the, the Murrah building and I was like, oh, my God. And she said, uh, she said, that's the federal courthouse in Oklahoma City. And I, as I was kind of taking that in, she said, they're saying they think it's a gas explosion. And I sort of looked at it and, you know, I don't know much about gas. I didn't certainly at that time know much about gas explosions, but it seemed to me if the if the explosion had come from within the building, it would have blown the building outward. And this looked like it was kind of sheared off on the front. And so I said to her, I said, you know, that doesn't look like a gas explosion to me. And she said, yeah, me either. And, you know, Mary had covered, she'd been at UPI. She covered a lot of, uh, you know, I guess, disasters, for lack of a better term. But she had actually recently won an award for covering a gas explosion near Brenham. And, and you know, she kind of knew a little bit more about this stuff than I did. And so, um, you know, I, I don't remember if either of us actually said the word bomb, but I know we were both thinking it. And so I just said, you know, I, I got to go. I mean, I got to get up there. Um which was kind of a risky decision uh, at Bloomberg at that, at that time because we didn't really cover a lot of this kind of stuff, you know. Um, 
And, and I sort of took a chance because I didn't want to get into a debate with editors in, in New York and, and Princeton, where a lot of our operations were based, over whether there was a financial impact and, you know, that kind of thing. I just wanted to get there because I knew everything was going to get crazy. You know, it was going to be hard to find hotels and cars and all that kind of stuff. And so um, I told her, I said, just wait about 15 minutes. Let me get on the road and then tell them that I'm going and we'll figure the rest out. You know, as we go. <laughs> so not necessarily the, the best, uh, you know, career decision in terms of job security, but I, I kind of figured that, you know, uh, cooler heads would prevail. And once I was there, they'd be glad I was. And that, that was exactly what happened. So uh, for those who don't know, uh, Oklahoma City is about three and a half to four hours from uh, Dallas, maybe from Frisco, closer to three or three and a half since you're on the north side of town. So you were literally up there probably by noon or, or early afternoon on the day of the bombing. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I, I kind of got in my car and, and at first I thought maybe I should fly. And then I realized that was going to be a nightmare. You know, I'd have to make sure I got a rental car when I got there and everything. And it turned out. Um, I later found out, in fact, Rick Bragg at the New York Times wrote about how he got the last rental car in Oklahoma City. So I just decided I was close enough. It was probably just as fast, if not faster, to drive. And, um, you know, so I got on I-35 and and I was flying. I mean, I was probably doing 85. And what was interesting was these cars with flashing lights. see flashing lights in my rearview mirror and I think, oh, God, you know, I'm going to get pulled over. And then they just blow past me. I mean, and it was I realized it was unmarked, uh, you know, vehicles, probably FBI and whatnot coming up from Dallas because, um, you know, Oklahoma City didn't have a large FBI office or, or other federal agencies. So um, a lot of those guys were basically doing the same thing I was doing. So uh, what happens when you get there? What did you see? And I guess what did you feel? Yeah, so I, I got there and um, I had never been to Oklahoma City before. So I literally had, had you know, was kind of looking at the map, trying to figure out. And I parked a few blocks away because I, I was afraid. I didn't know if they had a perimeter set up yet or not. And I didn't want to get caught. Sometimes those things expand and I didn't want to get caught where, you know, my car was stuck inside a cordoned off area. So I parked a few blocks away and started walking in. And um, I was actually, I'd gotten a call um I, it was either from the travel agent or from Mary. They were trying to find me a place to stay that night. And as I hung up the phone, this guy in a, in a blue windbreaker walks up and says, is that a cell phone? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I need to see it. Uh, you know, I need to borrow it. And uh, so I handed it to him and I realized, you know, he was, he, the, he was an FBI agent of some sort or investigator. And um, while he was talking on the phone, he kind of turned away from me and I looked over and that's the, the first time I saw the building. And it was really, you know, the, the magnitude of the destruction was just kind of hard to take in. I mean, the whole front half of the building was just gone. It looked like, um, you know, in the blog post, I said it looked like a layer cake that somebody had just kind of sliced down the middle and, and taken half of it away. I mean, it was really just unbelievable. And, um, you know, of course, pretty quickly uh, became clear it was not a gas explosion, that it was, you know, a, a bomb of some sort. And, um so I, and I think that I think they kind of said that kind of by the end of the day. But at that point, when I got there, this guy handed the phone back to me. And, and this, by the way, is one of those old Motorola flip phones, you know, like kind of like a brick. And um, he handed it back to me and, and he said, I said to him, you know, is there a command center set up yet? And he's like, we haven't even gotten that far. Like, we're still trying to figure out 
what's going on. And, you know, he kind of turned and walked off. And, and so it was really, you know, I, I don't know, like, like I said, I don't know exactly what time I got there, but it was only a few hours after the blast and, and they were still kind of scrambling to, to, you know, cordon off the area, collect evidence and, and that kind of thing. I guess the other, uh, I don't know if visual is the right word, but maybe it's even audio. You talked about the crunching of glass as you walked around. You know, I remember two things from the whole experience. The whole time I was there, it seemed like every step I took in the downtown area, you would hear glass crunching under your feet. It was just incessant because windows were blown out for blocks around. There was a lot of damage to the buildings nearby. And there was just this constant crunching sound as I walked. And it it really kind of stuck with me. It's one of the things I remember very vividly about the experience. And, and the other thing was that as you would walk around the downtown area or, you know, kind of in that vicinity and you'd see all these, you know, storefronts blown out and, and all the damage, you had to keep reminding yourself that this was a deliberate act, that a, that a person did this, you know, because you, your mind naturally, or at least my mind, having not covered a lot of, you know, crime and, and disasters and things like that as a business reporter, my mind kept going to the fact that, you know, this was like a tornado or, or some sort of natural disaster. And you had to keep reminding yourself that that wasn't the case. It was just the, the, the scale of the destruction was unbelievable. Who were some of the people you interviewed that have really stuck in your mind to this day? Oh, boy. You know, it was a lot of uh, there were a lot of press briefings and things like that. I mean, I was kind of one guy uh, working for a news organization that was still trying to figure out what its role was supposed to be in covering this. So, um, you know, but I remember interviewing uh, the the firefighter uh, Fields, I think his name was, who carried Bailey Almond, uh, you know, from the wreckage. He's in that very famous photo. And um, and I also the other thing I remember was interviewing a store clerk and this was by phone, but it was in uh, I think it was in Perryton. And she was the one that first spotted Timothy McVeigh, um, you know, as he was heading back to uh, Kansas or wherever he was going. And, and you know, that was the tip that led the authorities to pull him over and, and, and actually, um, you know, capture him. Um, up until that point, I think they, they had no idea. They had started to figure out who the suspects were. That was several days later, I believe. Um, and, you know, so there was kind of this, this you know, narrowing down of potential suspects. But um, that was, I believe she was the one that made the call that really let them know that's where he was. Were you uh, Bloomberg's only reporter on the site or on scene? I was the only one on the scene, and uh, it was it was a little overwhelming. I had never been sort of thrust into a, a situation like that, and it was one of those things where, I, I mean, on the one hand, I got to say it was probably a great experience professionally because, you know, in those days, Bloomberg stories were not widely distributed. You pretty much had to have a Bloomberg terminal, and they're probably weren't a whole lot of Bloomberg users that were going to be reading my stories, you know, as the primary source. Um, so it, it gave me, you know, it, it kind of took a little bit of pressure off in that sense. Um, but still, you know, I wanted to do a good job and we had actually just started our radio operations. And so that actually was a big part of why I was there and what I needed to do. And I certainly hadn't done live radio coverage. And I remember one of the editors, one of the radio editors in New York kind of coaching me at the scene. I mean, just sort of walking me through like, okay, say this, you know, tell me what you're seeing and say, as I look at the building, this is what I see. It was kind of just this crazy, like not only on the job training, but in the moment training, you know, he would kind of tell me this is how you set it up. And then I would literally do it and they'd record it and, and put it out. So it was, it was kind of crazy. 
I think you said in your blog post you were taking calls from uh, your colleagues as far away as Tokyo, giving them updates. Uh, so your day would start early and continue. Continue. It, it was this crazy, uh, and again, it was defined largely by the radio coverage. But um, you know, the, so the only room that the you know Bloomberg had a travel agency they used to, to book places when we traveled and stuff, and I. I told him like, I just need a room in Oklahoma city. I don't really care where it is. And, um, they wound up getting me. The only thing they could find was a two room suite at the Waterford, which is, you know, at the time was like the nicest hotel in Oklahoma city. So it was this very surreal experience where I would trudge back from the bomb site and I'd be, you know, dirty and wet, you know, it was raining part of the time. And I, you know, tromp into the lobby of this, you know, luxurious hotel, but I had this two room suite. And so I, what I would do is I'd get back you know, that evening from, from the day's, you know, briefings and interviews and whatnot, file any stories that I still had left to do. And then, you know, try to unwind a little bit and get some sleep. And, uh, and, and then Tokyo would call me when they, you know, when their day started and they'd want an update and they'd, they'd call me and they'd say, we'll call you back and, you know, wake up, we'll call you back in five minutes. Right. So I'd get out of bed and I walked into the other room because I had this two room suite and I had the TV on in that room the whole time. And then I would just check to make sure there wasn't any, any new updates or anything. And, you know, I'd, I'd go through my latest uh, story, you know, with them for the radio. And then, um, I'd go back to bed and the same thing would happen with London a few hours later. And then, and then New York would kind of be my wake up call. And, uh, then I'd go back out to the bomb site and, you know, get the latest there. So it was really, uh, I think I was there for five days uh, altogether, and it was it was um, it was a pretty intense routine. You ended your blog post by, uh, of course, talking about nine eleven and uh, the ter- domestic terrorism we faced since that time. Do you really see uh, Oklahoma City as as a starting point, or at least a point in a line to where we are now? Yeah, I think it was from a, especially from the standpoint of the attitude involved. Um, you know, I think the the thing that we, we sort of, in, in some ways, Oklahoma City has been overshadowed by all these other things we've dealt with, you know, 9-11, all the mass shootings we've had and that kind of thing. But it was really the first time that you had an individual decide that they were they were so angry that they were going to take innocent lives in order to, I don't know, get attention, get their message across. I mean, you know, it, it was kind of a turning point in in sort of this attitude that I don't care who I hurt. I'm going to be heard, you know, and and I'm right. Everybody else is wrong, and I'm willing to kill innocent people, including children, if that's what it takes. Um, and I think that was a real change in attitude, and we've seen that attitude, you know, in a lot of these sort of mass shootings and other domestic terrorism that we've been dealing with. And, of course, international terrorism, it, you know, it's obviously that's, that's part of the attitude. But um, I think it's very frightening when you have American citizens – thinking that way about their fellow Americans. Um, it, it's, you know, really a disturbing thing. And it's something that, that I struggle with every time I see another one of these, you know, mass shootings or, you know, even some of the other stuff that goes on, um, you know, this, this shooting we just had in Atlanta, um, you know, with the kid who was jogging. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't know all the information yet, but there's definitely this attitude of, okay, we're going to get this guy, right? And, and like, we're so sure we're right we're not going to allow for any other possibilities. And, and if people get hurt, so be it. And, and I, I just think we've got to really stand back and, and think about, you know, what we're doing in those situations where we're letting kind of our anger and our emotions get the best of us. 
Lauren, you wrote about uh, going back to Oklahoma City for the first time in 2015. So that would have been 20 years after the bombing. We're now 25 out. Uh, did, did you have that same sort of flood of emotions when you went back in 2015? Yeah, I really did. I mean, it hit me pretty hard. I, I didn't. Um, I purposely didn't go back. I, I actually had to go back one time for Bloomberg to, to Oklahoma City, but I was going to the Cowboy Hall of Fame, which is, of course, kind of out on the outskirts of town, out on the loop. And I literally flew into the airport, drove out there, covered this meeting, and, and came back. And I, I didn't go downtown. Um, and that was probably three or four years after the bombing. I just wasn't really ready. I, I'm not even sure they had the memorial at that point. But um, when I went back in 2015, I was doing some research uh, for my book on George Mitchell, and I was interviewing some uh, executives at Devon. And I did make sure to allow time because I, I decided I really wanted to go and see it. I felt like, you know, it was kind of crazy. I hadn't been to the memorial. And um, and it is an incredibly moving uh, thing. If you haven't been there, you really should. I mean, it, it is it is just so well done and really captures the emotion of of what happened. Um, it, it's devastating seeing those chairs that represent the victims and they're placed in the in the spots where the victims were found. And, of course, you know, 23 of them or whatever it is are smaller, which represent the children. Um just very, very moving. And I'm, I'm really glad I went. I probably should have gone before then. But, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very well done thing. I, I did find it a little hard to orient myself, um, having been gone for so long, you know, when you're standing there trying to figure out, okay, I know the building was here, but, you know, where was I during all this? And, and uh, it took a little while to because the city itself has changed a lot, obviously. Um, but uh, but it was, it was a very moving experience. Lord, if I could uh, spend the last few minutes of this podcast changing the subject quite a bit, uh, because uh, you mentioned your book on George Mitchell, but you also have a new book coming out on the last trial of uh, Boone Pickens. So I was wondering if we could uh, spend a few minutes just talking to us a little bit about that book. It seems a little bit of a departure from what you've written before, and perhaps even a departure on the stories of Boone Pickens. But uh, could you tell us a little bit about that book? It is a bit of a departure because this is the first time I've actually written as a woman. Um, so that was a challenge. But uh, I have a co-author on the book, uh, Krista Castaneda, and she was actually Boone's attorney uh, on this case, this Red Bull case in 2016 out in West Texas. And um, it, it was it was a really fascinating case that, quite frankly, I didn't think got all the attention that it should have at the time. And um, when I started talking with Krista, and she was very interested in doing a book, and it just seemed like telling it through her eyes was really the best way to do it. And, and I'm very proud of, you know, what we were able to do. Um, but it really is, is kind of her talking about this case, the strategies they, they used, you know, her relationship with Boone, which was, um, you know, I keep likening it to, to true grit. Um, there's kind of this true grit element to, to the way they interacted. Um, but it was a case where, you know, really everybody was against them from the beginning. Um, you know, the judge ruled against them at every turn. Even members of her own legal team didn't think they were, they were going to succeed. And, uh, it was really kind of the sheer force of her will and, and Boone's determination to see it through. You know, he was 88 years old and he was still in court every day. Um, it started out looking like a, a not a very big, you know, just kind of a side deal he did in this oil and gas venture and turned out to be the, one of the biggest deals he was ever involved in. So, um, you know, it was really a really a fascinating case and, and uh, a lot of fun. I think if you're familiar with Boone Pickens at all, if you've read stuff about him over the years, this kind of shows a side to him that 
people may not have known as well. Um, you know, he, he was really kind of changed a lot in the last few years of his life. And uh, this really kind of captures some of that. Well, the book is entitled The Last Trial of T. Boone Pickens. It is uh, by uh, Lauren Steffi and his co-author Krista Castaneda. It's out available on Amazon. I hope, Lauren, that I can ask you to come back after I get my copy and read it, and we can talk uh, in detail about that book. But uh, I wanted to thank you again for that blog post. I, I found it incredibly moving, and I hope every American will at some point take a, take a few minutes to think about Oklahoma City and where we are today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take a look at an issue related to the FCPA, Compliance and Ethics. We have two great new podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network that I hope you're aware of. The first one is Compliance and Coronavirus, where I try to bring sanity and clarity to the compliance practitioner and the business executive around coronavirus. Also, the Compliance Life features one CCO a month talking about their journey to the CCO chair and beyond in four parts. Uh, this month, that's Ryan Robillet, and has, who has a fascinating journey. Also, if you're a fan of Teddy Roosevelt, I have a series on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership hosted by Richard Lummis, where we're looking at Teddy Roosevelt, his life, his presidency and beyond, and what its messages are for the leaders of today. It's a fascinating series. I know you will enjoy it, and it's particularly important for compliance practitioners to uh, take a look at leadership skills. I hope you'll join me again next week for our next episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.